0: Today, I think it's going to be a very clear beginning, because um, as I wrote to you in the email when I contacted you first, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you're a senior author on one of my favorite papers. and um, So I'm referring to your science paper, which is one of the two papers we're going to talk about more today. Um, but I thought it might be nice to kind of say why, uh, what I like about the paper so much as a kind of introduction to the topic. So... There's kind of three separate reasons in a way for why I think it's a really cool paper. The first is that it offers a kind of first glimpse at what a biomarker for Alzheimer's disorder might be before, the, before it's too late, basically. Because as far as I understand right now, you are um, diagnosed. You're diagnosed with Alzheimer's disorder and by that point, there's it's basically too late. There's nothing you can do about it. But with this study, it seems like this might uh, offer some hope and a suggestion for how this might be achievable. And I think that's a, I mean, that's a huge <laughs> that's a huge step forward. Um, the second thing for me is also, I mean, I work with uh, neuroscience with humans and using fMRI. And I think there's always this, at least for me, this like question of like, does the fMRI signal really measure something useful or not? And, you know, because it's so indirect and all that kind of stuff. But then, I don't know, every time I have these thoughts, I think, well, It seems like there might be something there with your study where it seems to actually measure something that's real and that you know has some real world implications that yeah are more than just correlating (laughs) some activity with some task and the, the third reason is that I like that it's kind of it has this like main story as in like the title is reduced grid cell performance in patients or not patients but in not patients yet I mean that's the cool thing but then there's all these like lots of I feel like more than in other papers, lots of additional analyses that really provide a much more nuanced picture about okay, so you have this reduction in the activity, but the behavior or the, 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 they don't seem to be worse at the task, but they're compensating for it. And this is explained by this. And then you have like kind of multiple things all in one paper. So I thought, yeah, that's why it's, I think it's one of my favorite papers. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I want to talk about it.
1: Glad to hear about that. Glad to hear that.
0: Yeah. So maybe. Yeah, maybe as a very basic kind of starting point, uh, how did the project get started? I mean, and how did, I mean, I, I think you did, I'm not very familiar with the other stuff you've done. It seemed to be more related to memory or something. So how kind of did you go from oscillations in memory to um, this more kind of slightly more applied work? Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, that's a good question. So, uh, so actually, so at the time when when we started working at the paper, which was in, I guess, like 2000. 12, 2013. And then, of course, it took a while before it was published. That was a point in time when the new German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases started in Bonn. So it's called the DZNE in German, or like the, in English, it's the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases. So it's like a, both a research and a clinical treatment center related to Alzheimer's and others, other neurodegenerative diseases. And it was just established. Probably in 2010, 2011. And, um, I was, happened to be in Bonn at that time at, a, at the department of epileptology, where I mainly did memory research, as you mentioned. So short-term memory, long term memory, memory consolidation. And then I found this idea about this, this uh, center and the plans are uh, very intriguing. And I actually applied for, to become a PI in a junior research group uh, at that center about memory dysfunctions in, Neurodegenerative diseases. So in particular, Alzheimer's disease. And then I thought about which approach would be most useful to, to understand memory and memory changes and memory pathology and Alzheimer's disease. And the first decision sort of was to focus on very early disease stages for several reasons. So uh, first, because as you mentioned, uh, Alzheimer's is Alzheimer's disease is developing very slowly so across several decades so uh, where the symptoms only become apparent at a relatively large stage and so currently there's still no really effective treatment for for AD despite many drug trials and as you mentioned this is probably because the treatment only starts when the patients uh, have like advanced or at least symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. And when you look at the brains of these patients, um, they are very strongly destroyed already to a large degree. And I just thought it's, um, it's, it's quite unlikely that in the near future, any possible treatment will be successful at that stage. So basically you need to look earlier and this, this slow uh, progression is good, both a good and a bad thing. So the, the bad thing, of course, is that the, the disease starts so early, even. But the good thing is that if it is possible to find some either some biomarker or some cognitive marker uh, that is able to find these very early disease stages, then um, then you may identify patients or healthy participants still who are still in a who are already in a in a treatable uh, stage. So this was the first decision not to study uh, patients, but really healthy participants with a risk factor. And then as a risk factor, we focused on a specific genotype, the APOE genotype or APO-lipoprotein E. And this is this single one uh, genetic alteration, mutation, polymorphism, however you want to call it, um, that is um, explaining uh, the risk for Alzheimer's disease more than uh, any other single gene. Um, as a side note, it should be mentioned that there's other Kinds of Alzheimer's disease, so the familiar type of Alzheimer's disease, where there's also genetic mutations that, however, lead with a penetrance of almost one hundred percent to Alzheimer's disease. So then it's not a risk factor but really a gene that causes um, the disease. but this is this is a very rare case, and i' I found it more rewarding to to focus on the like the more common form of Alzheimer's disease.
0: I have one quick question about the patients here is that mm. so in your paper you mentioned that there's a tenfold increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disorder if you have both of these alleles. Mm. Um, but I don't know what the baseline is. Uh, so is it like, and I guess this is already maybe a fairly technical question, but my question was, like what, what I was wondering when I read that was are, how likely actually are they absolute in absolute terms to develop Alzheimer's disorders and therefore how likely are you actually to have people in your study who...
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I, I would need to, to look up the numbers uh, for, for Alzheimer's disease. But in the general population, the the uh, risk of getting Alzheimer's disease changes with age. So, at an age of about 65, it's, it's relatively low. It's a few percent. At an age of 75, it's already above 10 percent. And at 85, it's, I would guess, roughly at about 20 percent. But I, I would need to look up these numbers. Okay. So, So it's like a threefold increase is clinically relevant. And this is also one of the reasons why uh, when we uh, recruited the participants, the entire um, study would be completely double blind. So we would not look up whether a particular person um, whom we scanned Was a risk carrier or not. So we couldn't tell. We only looked that up after all the data had been uh, collected and had been fully pseudonymized. And also there were some participants who were asked us whether we could tell them. And um, we had a long discussion with the IRB in Bonn at that case uh, at that time. And um, the institutional review board told us that we would not be allowed, even if the participant would be interested to look that up, because this is information that can be psychologically very distressing because you know that you have a clinically relevant risk factor for alzheimer's disease which is currently not really treatable so that's why why it was fully double-blind
0: but wait just okay just a a quick question here again because what i assumed what happened was is that you I, i don't know because somehow i assumed the recruitment of these participants worked something like i don't know you had people with alzheimer's and because it's a genetic thing you can Recruit the children, or something, or something like that. So I assume they already knew this, but this was just general population, and then you gave them a DNA sampling.
1: These were just students. So basically, ah, what we did okay. was to to go to the to the big lectures uh, at Bonn University. Um, so there's some lectures with hundreds of students, and then I asked the the, the faculty member who was giving the lecture lecture whether I could have a, like a two minute slot at the end of the lecture and tell about the study and uh, ask whether there would be some some volunteers would uh, be interested in in potentially participating. And then afterwards, we were standing outside with some students and colleagues outside of the lecture hall and would genotype as many participants as as possible. And then from this large database of more than a thousand participants, we uh, randomly selected risk carriers and non-risk carriers and, and invited them. But when a given person arrived at the lab, we wouldn't know whether this would, was a risk carrier or not.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: So this this was like the, the basic setup. So we, we decided to, to look at young participants and we decided at, to look at APOE uh, for risk carriers. And uh, looking at young participants also uh, had the benefit that we could do this relatively long and demanding fMRI study. So this would not be possible with an Alzheimer's patients. It probably also wouldn't be possible with someone suffering from mild cognitive impairment. And maybe uh, maybe it would be possible, but it would be very demanding and difficult to do um, even in the average healthy 70 years old, because these for elderly people, it's more difficult to lie still in the scanner without moving a few millimeters for more than an hour and doing the virtual reality paradigm. I mean... Just because of like back back problems and so on, so we we could do this like relatively complex paradigm in um, in young participants, and then then we thought which which paradigm should we do and which area should we target, and we relatively early decided to to focus on the entorhinal cortex, which is one of the most uh, one of one of the brain areas that is affected earliest in Alzheimer's disease. There's some neuropathological studies that is that suggests that it's even the first area to be affected. Um, and the entorhinal cortex is an, an input zone to the hippocampus. And whereas the hippocampus is extremely well characterized, it's maybe the the, the best characterized brain region in both rodents and in humans. Um, this is not necessarily the case for, for the entorhinal cortex, in particular with regard to memory. There's many studies on the division of labor between the hippocampus and the neocortex and also between the hippocampus and in an other adjacent area the perirhinal cortex suggesting that the hippocampus is more doing relational memory associative memory recollection based memory and the perirhinal cortex is doing item based memory so other kinds of memory uh, but the, like the role of the entorhinal cortex for memory is not not really that well known so if you look in pubmed you find that the number of studies um, that look at memory in humans, specifically in the entorhinal cortex, is is very low. There's a few studies, but but it's, it's relatively few. So then we thought of alternatives and saw so other cognitive processes. And at that time, the uh, like one of the most investigated uh, research areas in with regard to medial temporal lobe were the grid cells that were just discovered in 2004, 2005 in the MOSAS uh, lab. And the grid cells are a particular type of cells that is probably putatively relevant for spatial navigation and um, that fires in a very specific manner. So it like a single grid cell does not fire at one location when you walk around in a room or when the rodent runs around in an environment, but fires in a very repetitive uh, pattern in um, across the environment, and therefore has been um, suggested to to be a neural signature or a neural provide a neural metric for distance estimation and path integration. I guess we come back to that a little bit later. And when we were interested in, uh, at the time when we planned the study, there was just one publication from Neil Burgess' uh, group with Christian Döller as a, as a first author that was published in Nature in 2010. And that suggested that the grid cells could be measured, could be studied non-invasively using functional MRI. So I knew Christian uh, from previous Uh, meetings and uh, contacted him and asked him whether he would be interested uh, in sharing his paradigm to apply it in the genotype participants and test whether the genotype participants with a genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease would show any dysfunction at the level of this network fMRI pattern of grid cells in entorhinal cortex. And and he agreed and uh, sent us the paradigm. And uh, then we We scanned the risk carriers and non-risk carriers. So so that was basically how the study developed.
0: That's really interesting somehow. Yeah, it's fun. I, I never realized... That there wasn't much research on memory and the entorhinal cortex. I mean, I guess I never, I was never very particularly interested in memory per se. So I've, you know, I've had like, like I did psychology and cognitive neuroscience in my bachelor's and masters. So you know, I've, I've heard about these things, but it never occurred to uh, yeah, that's right. The memory research is always about the hippocampus. It's never about entorhinal um, cortex. And for me, just because I, um, in particular, I took um, I did my masters um, at UCL and took Neuberger's course. With Caswell Barry, they taught a course on neural computation. So that was all about memory and the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex and grid cells and places like. And it never occurred to me that it's right. The entorhinal cortex was only really mentioned in relation to grid cells. Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't realize it was that specific. Yeah,
1: I think it's still an an area for uh, for research. So I think it would be would still be interesting to uh, try to elucidate and investigate the. The function specifically of the entorhinal cortex for for memory. It's not not yeah. an area that I'm that I'm currently working on, but I think it's it's still a, still a bit of an open question.
0: Yeah, and and the I mean I talked to Kate Jeffrey on the podcast uh, also a little bit about kind of how this was discovered because she recorded entorhinal cortex grid cells in like in the 90s, early like mid 90s, but didn't realize she was doing that mm. uh, because the box the arena wasn't big enough. Basically, it wasn't enough to see the pattern. And I think she also said like it's it's kind of it was the obvious place to look at where place cells get their firing from, just because it's one synapse away from it. But mm-hmm. yeah, like that's it. It's just basically yeah. like you just go like, well, where does it get its signal from? Let's look at that place. But oh, huh, okay. I, yeah, I never realized that intranuclear cortex wasn't as well known as the hippocampus. But now that you say it, it's yeah, kind of obvious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, do you maybe want to outline then, uh, I guess we've been kind of talking about the study without actually saying what you did and found. Yeah, just a brief summary of that.
1: Yeah. So the the participants uh, conducted a, a spatial navigation study while they were lying in a scanner, so uh, in a virtual reality paradigm, which was like mm-hmm. I- adopted from the previous study of, of Christian Döller in 2010. So um, in this uh, task, the participant had to learn the locations of different objects in the environment and try to remember the locations and then move to the location. So specifically in each given trial, they saw one object, so which were just everyday objects like a, a clock or had some, an eggplant, a baby bottle, and so on. So all kinds of objects. And um, there were eight objects in total, and each of the objects was initially shown at one of the locations in the environment, and the participant was asked to go there, to move there with some button presses a, on a keypad. So then in each trial, they saw one of the objects, so let's say the uh, eggplant, and they moved to a location in the, in the arena, in the virtual arena, where they believed the eggplant was actually located. And then they pressed a button. And at the beginning, with these eight objects, it's, it's terribly complicated. So the participants essentially perform a chance. So they just place it somewhere. But then after placing it, they see the correct location in each trial. So they can then go to the correct location of, of the eggplant and re-encode or again learn where the eggplant belongs. And then in the next trial, there was another object and so on. So across the entire experiment, which took more than an hour, they saw each object more than a 100 times. So uh, you can nicely see how the performance improves uh, for the objects, whereas at the beginning, the participants are very bad. They get better and better um, across the um, paradigm. So what this gives you is a measure of um, spatial memory, which is the inverse of the drop error. So the further away in a given trial, the participant drop an object, the larger the drop error and the worse the memory. And this improves across the uh, paradigm. At the same time, what you can record is how the participants are moving in the arena, and in particular, in which direction they are moving. And then with a very elegant analysis, you can test whether there's higher activity in the higher bolt responses uh, in the entorhinal cortex during movements in one of six different preferred directions, which refer to the main orientations of the grid cells, as compared to the directions in between. So basically what you do is identify a hexadirectional modulation of the bolt response in the entorhinal cortex as a function of movement direction. So it's a bit of a complicated analysis, but it has been replicated many times now and uh, seems to be a, quite a robust finding.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't mentioned it yet, but I always put the references for the papers we discuss in the description of the episode. So uh, if you want to know more about that, I guess the best place is probably just to read the Dollar paper from
1: 2010. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, so then our main hypothesis was that, uh, I mean, first of all, we could replicate the, uh, the, uh, the finding from Christian Dollar because the, our 2015 paper was the first to like try again, um, their analysis algorithm. And then second, uh, we hypothesized that the grid cell like representations were reduced in the entorhinal cortex. So what we did was to like record uh, participants. And then after maybe 20, 30 participants, we said, well, we are still not finished with the recordings, but we would like to know how it's going and whether in the recording so far, we see any grid cell-like representations. And so we applied the analysis that Christian Döller did and found that there were no grid cell-like representation in the internal cortex in the first 30 participants, which were like a random mixture of genetic risk carriers and non-risk carriers. And we said, oh, Maybe it's just too little, so we kept on recordings, kept on recordings, and of course we had a, like a target number. We wanted to to uh, scan forty risk carriers and forty non-risk carriers, but I think it's good to do some quality controls uh, also along the way. So uh, we recorded more participants, and when we were at about fifty or sixty, we again ran the analysis and again didn't didn't find any significant hexadirectional directional modulation in the cortex. And, and
0: if if I remember correctly, the analysis is also you look for each participant whether there is this encoding right so it's not like you have like one overall analysis that you have for each participant. you didn't find it basically right exactly That's what you're saying yeah.
1: okay exactly so we thought, oh, so uh, maybe it, uh, we, we will just find that the, that the wonderful nature paper is not replicable. So this will be a, like an intense discussion with Christian Döllerhoff when we need to tell him that we just cannot, <laughs> cannot replicate his results. Yeah, but Christian, maybe we need to
0: have a word. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but maybe if we want to be very optimistic, it could just be that there's, there are grid like representations in the non risk carriers and just no grid like representations in the risk carriers. And therefore, when we lump them all together, we cannot find the the, the pattern, right? Because we hadn't looked at the the different genotypes yet. So we just completed the study, and um, after we had uh, 80 participants and needed to exclude a few, but had more than 35 in each group, we um, separated the risk carriers and the non-risk carriers and then indeed found, a bit to our surprise, that our hypothesis was absolutely confirmed, so that the 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 non-risk carriers showed robust and clear grid-like representations so we could replicate Christian's previous findings, whereas the risk carriers did not show grid-cell-like representations. So so they were massively reduced to the degree that they could not be recorded, that they could not be found at this network uh, level measure of grid-cell-like representations. So this was the, the first and um, maybe the main finding in the paper that in the participants who were uh, had an average age of 22 years, so were really young university students with no apparent neuropsychological deficits, but if they had a, a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, so a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's dementia in their 60s, 70s, or 80s, Already at an age of 22, they showed this massive reduction of the functionality of grid cells at this network level. So that was that was a bit astonishing and um, yeah, yeah. also um, disturbing, maybe that in in such young participants you are already find clear evidence for um, reduction of the functional grid-like representations.
0: Yeah, um, I'd like to ask about the, uh, or like get to the other findings in a second. before, I have one question, which is something that just occurred to me is that did you ever consider not doing the study because it was a bit too risky i mean it kind of seems like the nature paper had never been replicated as you said and now you're doing this i'm assuming you have to sequence the the, the genome of the participants so and then you have to scan them in a long effort. so it sounds like a lot of effort for something that you know is just this and i think in christian Duller's paper also it's one experiment right i mean one with humans and then they have like a other side thing with rats but the so basically like one study found this and now you're putting up a pretty large study yeah i was just curious like it's yeah yeah.
1: it was it was definitely a high risk high gain project so i mean it could have been that either we wouldn't be able to replicate the the initial finding or it could have been that there would not be any difference between the risk carriers and the non-risk carriers it was a risky study but yeah, we were lucky to, uh, to 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 find some some interesting results.
0: Okay, okay. So as you said, big difference in grid cell like representation, but obviously, you know, as we as we mentioned earlier, people don't develop symptoms until quite a bit longer. So. Um, maybe you can link that to the, to the next finding here. Yeah.
1: Yes. So the next finding was, uh, actually a lack of a finding. Um, so when we looked at the performance so the, the, uh, the drop error and how they changed with learning, there was absolutely no evidence for any difference between the risk carriers and the non-risk carriers. So when we plot the curves of the, um, of the drop error as a function of trials, it drops dramatically at the beginning. It's very high. At the end, it's very low but it exactly overlaps for the risk carriers and the non-risk carriers and we also look for a number of other uh, markers like how how rapidly the participants moved the number of trials that they could do um, and so on and there was really no evidence for any for any difference so the um, the most parsimonious explanation of that is: okay, you can use this complex analysis to identify grid-like representations in the in the entorhinal cortex of humans, but they have no functional relevance whatsoever. It's just some some weird uh, epiphenomenon or surrogate marker. So next, we tried a little bit harder and uh, conducted a multiple linear regression analysis in which we took multiple different factors into account that may explain together conjointly the inter-individual variance in performance. So in addition to to the grid-like representations, we considered um, the the genotype, so uh, whether a participant was an APOE4 or non-APOE4 carrier, whether the participant would be male or female, whether the participant would be a little bit older or younger. And then we did a few additional control analyses in which we included some other factors. But these were the main predictors.
0: Actually, predictors of what?
1: What's the... Uh, Predictors of individual performance. So of the summed drop error across all trials. And in this multiple linear regression analysis, we indeed found... uh, So first of all, the the, um, genotype by itself did not predict performance. The male participants were substantially better than the female participants... We hadn't explicitly looked at that, but this was uh, also a finding that was consistent with some previous studies, like showing better spatial navigation performance in a number of uh, different… It um, also came out in and, the
0: Sequest study, right? I think I saw something. Yes, that it's, a,
1: it's, a, it's a, like a recurring finding. We also found that in a number of follow-up studies, so it yeah. just seems to be that the male participants are doing better than females in many uh, navigation uh, experiments. The third finding was that the those participants who were a little bit younger were doing better than those who were a little bit older. And interestingly then, the uh, grid-like representations in a given participants did predict significantly the performance. So those participants who had better grid-like representations, more pronounced grid-like representations also had a better performance. So then we thought, wait a minute, this doesn't really fit together. So on the one hand, we have the genotype effect. So the, the risk carriers have reduced grid-like representations, the reduced grid-like representations predict performance, but the, the risk carriers do not perform worse. How is that possible? And then we thought, well, maybe it is because the risk carriers use some compensatory other brain system to do the task. And an obvious candidate is to look at the hippocampus, right? Because uh, of the uh, play cells and the known, well-known role of the hippocampus for, for spatial navigation. So we, we just took an overall sum measure of hippocampal activity during the task, task-related hippocampal activity, and tested whether this differed depending on whether a participant had more pronounced grid-like representations or reduced-like reduced grid-like representations. And we found, indeed, that, that there was a negative correlation. Participants who had more pronounced grid-like representations had relatively lower hippocampal activity as compared to those who had reduced grid-like representations. So this suggests that you can do the task with two alternative complementary mechanisms or spatial navigational systems, either a system that relies on grid cells in the entorhinal cortex or a system that relies on the hippocampus. So I think this, this was another fascinating finding because it, it fits to some previous results suggesting that in a very early Alzheimer's disease, there's a hyperactivity, a relative hyperactivity of the hippocampus, not only of the hippocampus, but also of other areas of the default mode network, but including the hippocampus. And this may actually be uh, functionally and pathologically relevant because there's evidence from rodents which shows that rodents who have a permanent hyperactivity of a default mode network aggregate more amyloid as the main pathological marker of Alzheimer's disease in this area, which in turn then leads to a stronger progression of the disease. So it may be that when you at young age have a reduced grid system. This leads to a compensatory hyperactivity in the hippocampus, which helps you to maintain performance in the short term, but could actually be detrimental and causally contributing, at least, to the further development of Alzheimer's disease. In humans, this is still, still more speculative, and it's definitely speculative in these very young participants, but it would, would be consistent with a number of previous uh, findings. And then the, the final piece of or the final finding from this from the study was uh, that we looked further whether there was any evidence that the recruitment or reliance of either the entorhinal or the hippocampal navigational system would show up in a slightly different navigational strategy. And what we did was to investigate whether the participants moved either in the center of the arena or at the border of the arena. So... You can reach each of the objects via different trajectories, of course, right? And this is independent of the drop arrow. So the drop arrow can be very high or it can be minimal, regardless of your path um, to this, um, to this the, object.
0: The arena, there's no like objects in the way or something, right? You can just... the How you get there is pretty free to the participant,
1: right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Maybe I should have described how the arena looks like. So this is basically a, a circular area, which... With some grass on the floor, which is surrounded by a wall. And in the distance, you have some mountains that you can use for um, directional information. Um, But at any given point in time, the arena is empty. So you only can, can move around completely freely and then place the objects where you need, where you think they belong. So you could either move more along the, along the boundary or straight through the center. And uh, what we found was that the risk carriers were more likely to move along the border of the trajectory than the non-risk carriers. So even though they both groups did the task equally well, there was some, some obvious and statistically very significant difference in the, in the movement pattern in the arena. And this was, this was something that we've just found out through exploration. But interestingly, this, this finding now has been, has been replicated in a number of other studies also from, from other groups. Um, so, for example, in the CE request, they also found that APOE4 carriers, so genetic risk carriers, moved more towards the boundary, which was which in the in the CE request, uh consists of the like the the, the land part of this uh, paradigm, than uh, than the non-risk carriers. So, it seems to be uh, like a common phenotype of APOE4 carriers that they tend to move closer to boundaries. When we conducted the study, we we didn't really know. Why that was. So uh, we thought, well, if we would have done a rodent experiment, maybe it would have indicated that um that the risk carriers show higher anxiety because rodents obviously don't like to move in open arenas, but but for humans it's it's not that obvious. I mean there's there's some indications. So for example if you go to a restaurant typically most people prefer to to sit at the uh, at the boundaries or at a uh it's like towards the, the wall the and then yeah. like to expose themselves in the center, but it's it's obviously not as not as pronounced. So we we just speculated that this may be a reason, but we were not really convinced that it is. And then a few years later, there was a there was a paper coming out from Lisa Giocomo's group at Stanford, where she found that risk carry um not risk carriers, that grid cells actually need encounters with a boundary to stabilize their firing patterns. So when you look at the stability and the accuracy of the firing of grid cells, depending on whether rodents have been far away from any, any boundary uh, or probably also other spatial cues, the grid cell firing becomes less stable. So it's probably due to some error accumulation. There's some, some inaccuracies that develop. Whereas like shortly after encounter with a boundary, the grid cell firing is very precise. So obviously, this, this didn't really work in the risk areas, right? Because they, they moved close to the boundary, but, but still their, their grid cell pattern was, was quite inaccurate. So we, we, our, our current interpretation is that this is actually an attempt to try to stabilize the, the grid pattern, but it's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not effective in the, in the risk areas.
0: One thing that I think it actually kind of fits with some of the rodent literature on the development of spatial navigation, because Remember correctly, there when you know, these are studies where they do these kind of study with rats when they're just a few days or like three weeks or four weeks old. And I think there you start off with these boundary cells. And it takes like basically like at day fourteen after birth or something, they have like boundary cells or something like that, and maybe some play cells, but they don't have grid cells yet. That kind of takes more, takes longer to do that. So it seems maybe that yeah, I mean it's the same thing. If I guess if you don't have this like generalized metric through the grid cells you kind of have to use whatever's left in this case boundaries and
1: exactly sandbox. Yeah. So, so that's um, so. So I think on the one end, one could one could think that the encounters with the boundary help 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 to stabilize the the grid cells just because you get more visual information, but could also indicate that you fall back onto maybe um, an ontogenetically older navigation system that is more supported by the hippocampus that is also affected later in Alzheimer's disease, so that putatively is still still functional in the uh, in the young risk carriers, but that shows up in the specific. Navigation paths, so that the participants are orienting themselves by moving close to the boundaries.
0: Yeah, I guess there's like yeah two different interpretations of the same thing, right? Either that they're trying to stabilize the grid cells, or they are just they can't use them or use them exactly. less, right? It's not like a on-off. um One question I think is kind of my final question about this paper, which is: Were the participants the risk carriers? Uh, aware that they were using the boundaries more or that they were moving closer to boundaries. Is this something that people were aware of?
1: Not as far as we know. I guess you
0: didn't even know who they were during the testing here.
1: Yes, and we also didn't ask them uh, explicitly. I mean, this is something that we are currently exploring in, in, in follow-up studies where we are looking at boundary effects. So the propensity of a given person to move close at a boundary and also there we, we, we are using like questionnaires and, and ask the participants about their the subjective navigation strategies and so on. But in that study it was basically an exploratory analysis that we did after the data collection had been had been completed just to explain this apparent just to explain how the, this finding that, that the participants seem to rely either on one or the other navigation system. So either the grid cell system or the hippocampus, um, and test whether this was somehow reflected in navigational strategies, but it was very exploratory. And my, my guess would be that the participants wouldn't notice, but then, I mean, on the other hand, how should they? Because they were. Either always risk carriers or non-risk carriers, right? So they were not like suddenly in a condition where they move close to a boundary. So they would need to compare themselves to others and,
0: uh, or I or I guess to their previous selves, right? Supposedly I guess the idea is that the the entorhinal cortex deteriorates throughout their life, right? Um, yes, but the question is, or is, is it really, that they're born with?
1: That, 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 that's that's really a good question. I mean, the the question is when does uh pathology start, and there's um. There's some interesting literature, um, also from there's some literature from rodents, but in particular there's liter- literature from neuropathology where the brains of children or adolescents who died from not from Alzheimer's disease but from something were dissected, and um, and then the entorhinal cortex was studied. That this is mainly worked by. Um, Bragg, who is also, also did the famous Bragg staging for Alzheimer's disease, like a famous neuropathologist. And he found that that in some participants you could even see tau neurodegeneration, t- uh, which is neurodegeneration that among other diseases you also find in Alzheimer's disease, can can be observed in even in children below 10 years, so so very young children. And they interestingly also found that the likelihood to see these neuropathological findings is higher in ApoE4 carriers. So it may be that that even before the age of of 22, we would have found some um, some effects.
0: Mm. Okay. So what's the paper with the the risk carriers having even in childhood?
1: Yeah, I believe that is cited in the in the Science paper. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe gibramedin and others so it's it's all work from from heiko Brack. so if you if you cannot okay. find it just let me know then then I, mm-hmm. I search for it afterwards
0: okay yeah great um yeah those are kind of the 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 questions i think we've kind of covered the science article pretty <laughs> yes. already. Yeah. um so maybe we can just uh yeah maybe move on to the science advances paper and then kind of have a Broader quest, uh, like discussion after that. I think maybe one way to summarize the science advances paper in like two sentences or whatever is something like: in your science paper, you found that people have reduced grid cell like activity, but they can compensate with other mechanisms. And in the science advance paper, the question is: what do they do if they can't rely on these mechanisms?
1: Exactly. So um, the 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 main the main idea behind the uh, science advance paper was to um, to develop a paradigm with different conditions. So one condition where uh, where you conduct a specific spatial navigation task that you can only solve relying on the entorhinal cortex. So probing the entorhinal co- cortex with a with a relatively specific task. So not the spatial learning task that we did before that, that is known to rely on a variety of different navigational systems. And then on the other hand, use a, a control condition, or in that case, two control conditions, Where subtle dysfunction of the entorhinal cortex can can putatively compensated for by recruiting other systems. So, so basically the the, the main, the main idea is that when you navigate in the real world, typically you use a multitude of different mechanisms. So one mechanism is orienting at allocentric cues. So for example, I mean, spatial navigation here at Ruhr University is a very challenging thing. I'm not sure whether you've ever been here. This is a huge campus. It's very confusing. And the, the simplest way to to find your uh, your path is to, to use a landmark, for example, the big Audimax, which you can see from many places, and then you just go there. So this is a relatively simple navigation strategy. You don't you probably, I would, I would argue that probably you don't need grid cells for that. You just need to keep this spatial cue in in mind, or in in your in your sight, ideally, and go to it. Another strategy then, um, and that is very different, is landmark-based navigation. So landmark-based navigation is a strategy where you uh, remember specific salient points on a particular trajectory, and just remember whether you need to go left or right when you see this point, right? So this is a, an egocentric navigation strategy, obviously. So when you come from a different direction, you shouldn't go in the same direction. Yeah.
0: Like the idea being, I go to the petrol station and then turn left. But if you're coming from the other direction, yeah. Then you should, go. should you should right. turn right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this, this is a, a so-called landmark-based navigation strategy. And then there's a third system, which is called path integration. And path integration means that you basically estimate the Distance that you travel and the direction in which you're traveling, and um, then use this information to to find a path. So this this, uh, strategy is um, can be used. So the advantage of this strategy is that it can be used in the absence of most other sensory cues. So for example, my, my main example is always when you when you're in a hotel room. And at night, you need to, you want to go to the bathroom and it's completely dark. So you don't, don't see anything. Then you try to remember in which direction to go. And you know, okay, it's about like four meters to go to the, to the door. So you, you're more or less able to find your way unless there's something standing in your way. Right. So, and this, this is a, a strategy where basically you, you estimate the distance, uh, to the door and the direction and this, and you rely on path integration. If you can or see the door, you don't need that.
0: Yeah, maybe one example. I don't know whether this is true, uh, but it seems like it might be Um, if you're uh, in prehistoric or (laughs) before GPS and that kind of stuff. If you were uh, at sea, then you'd probably calculate your speed uh, and with a compass, your direction, and then you kind of calculate where you are.
1: Is exactly that kind of
0: idea, right? Yeah. Just yeah, so, you know, not yeah. that conscious.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's like for, for a little bit larger distances than hotel rooms. Uh, and and this is this is another very good example for for path integration. Uh another example is when you are um when you're doing a hike in an unknown environment and uh like go for a while and then think well now it's now it's time to go home so basically what you need to do is like remember how far you went and into which direction and then then you try to find back your your uh, initial location
0: yeah that's what i tried to do last weekend because i moved to like a new place and there's kind of not mountains is a big word it's more like a large hill but uh through the woods and i thought you know classic cognitive map i thought i knew a shortcut. I asked someone whether I was whether I was going the right <laughs> direction. I was going the complete opposite direction of where I should have gone. Apparently, yeah, that yeah. didn't work in that case. I
1: yeah. know the situation, and I think it's actually it's actually relevant because path integration is a pretty poor navigation strategy, because uh, when you just estimate a little bit uh, incorrectly, like short distances, then it all. Adds up and accumulates uh, for longer distances. So this is called error accumulation, and this uh, like an intrinsic property of path integration. And this is this is also one reason why, whenever possible, people rely and also rodents rely on additional visual cues, and use that to to correct the path integration error, similar to the correction of the accuracy of grizzer firing when you encounter walls. Right. So it's a yeah. I think it's the same mechanism. So. Um, Uh, So we designed a study in which we again invited APOE4 carriers and non-carriers mainly to do a behavioral study. Then there was also some some smaller fMRI study, but the main part of that paper was a behavioral study where we had a typical path integration paradigm. So the participants again navigated through virtual reality, but now they didn't have to remember the locations of objects in the arena. They just started from one location, from an empty basket in that case, and then went uh, to a series of trees to find one tree that contained an apple. That's why we called it the apple game. It's actually Lucas Kunz, who, uh, is the first author of that study and designed the paradigm who came up with the name, so he should be credited for that. And uh, after finding the apple, what should you do with that? Bring it back to the basket. So basically, um, it's an I would I would guess like. Um, reasonably realistic naturalistic paradigm where then with the apple the participant should find the location of the initial basket and again you have a drop error which is the inaccuracy in a given trial between the so the distance between the location where the people believe the basket is and the actual location of the basket so now this is um, done in three different environments in one environment this is the most difficult the participant only see a grassy plane so they can only look at the visual flow during movement along this arena or space. There's no, really no boundary and no, no distal cues to try to uh, orient themselves and estimate the distances. And then there's two other conditions, either a condition with a, with a wall that provides some, some additional information or a third condition with a local landmark so which you can also use for orientation. And what we found was that the APOE4 carriers were specifically impaired and only impaired in the task where they had only to rely on the visual cues, whereas in the two other conditions, with the landmark and with the boundary, they were not impaired as compared to the the controls. So this suggests indeed that when you are in a situation when you can only rely on, on path integration, so only on the grid cell system, then the ape 4 queries are worse. But as soon as they can use some compensatory, compensatory system, they are at par with the, with the controls. This was a, this was a, a relatively large scale study. So this was a, done in the so-called Apple game consortium. So it's a number of, uh, of groups in, um, in Spain, Italy, Germany, and Belgium, who each recruited participants, genotyped them, and then had them done the the experiments, and was also not only in young students, but also in in uh, like towards like I think starting from 20 to 75 years, so across the entire age range, yeah, showing that that the ApoE4 has a very specific detrimental effect on on path integration
0: yeah yeah, it's really cool. I mean, in in a, it seems to me in a way, it's like a it's a specification of a, of a something you believed or not believed I found, but like something of an interpretation of the um, science paper right exactly. Yes. yeah does this? I'm wondering, does so we just mentioned earlier that the the, the compensation in the science paper through move through moving closer to the boundaries, uh, as we just mentioned, there's At least two possible interpretations. One is they use this to anchor the grid cell system to help it, and the other is just they just use a different system altogether. Does this paper say anything about
1: that? Yeah, so uh, the, the 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 finding is a little bit different. But what we found in the landmark condition in particular is that the risk carriers moved closer to the landmark when they brought the apple. Back from the tree with apples to the to the basket, so this suggests that they again stick more to a salient visual cue in order to do the path integration task. So in this par- in this in this condition, they are not worse than the than the non-risk carriers, but it again suggests that they they tend to uh, rely more on on additional visual cues. Uh,
0: so oh, I don't know whether you have anything uh, like more to say about this study. I kind of.
1: No, I think, I think that's the main finding. I mean, I also think it's interesting because it really shows that like, that there's some very specific cognitive paradigm in in which you can see dysfunction of APOE4 carriers, which we didn't find in the previous study. So it, it may pave the way to, to very sensitive neuropsychological tests to find early dysfunction.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, exactly. So, I mean, I want to slightly broaden out now kind of the discussion. Uh, maybe we can do like the application to clinical research in a second uh, before that. So, one thing I'm really interested in in this space is the idea of these abstract cognitive maps and that the entire system is also used for that. I mean, I talked quite a bit with Jakob about this, um, Jakob uh, Bermond and uh I, I don't know whether i'm per se gonna do research on this but this is something i'm very interested in and i'm just curious so i mean maybe to summarize that in like a few seconds is the the is that okay so this play cell grid cell this whole thing we've been talking about all of that has been initially found or was initially found in spatial navigation context but well roughly since your science paper roughly since that time um there have been quite a few papers that came out that showed that there seems to be some evidence that this, these grid cells are also involved in processing other dimensions. So we can, you know, if we think of space as having two spatial dimensions, if you're moving in a plane, then there are studies where there's so that these two dimensions could just be anything else. The Constantinescu papers with neck length and leg length, which is really hard to say. Uh, I agree. <laughs> um... Uh, of, of of birds in this task but basically the idea is that maybe this is a much much more general uh, phenomena where we just happen to find it in space so i'm curious just if we apply that kind of idea or maybe let's just assume for a second that it is the case to your studies i'm wondering so one thing i also asked jakob and we didn't really have a good answer necessarily for this is for like for example what would a landmark be in this kind of abstract cognitive space um or maybe i'm i'm asking maybe one question before i should ask another one um i'm not sure really what the question is um like uh, i guess you're are you planning to do anything like that in that direction or um or you're nodding yeah i guess maybe
1: (laughs) yes so uh, i find the i found the the constantinescu study very intriguing and i think it it filled in a way like a gap in the theory about the medial temporal lobe so entorhinal cortex and hippocampus for cognitive functions in general because so what you what you see is that in in rodents there's place cells in the hippocampus and grid cells in the cortex in humans there's some mixed evidence one has to say about the existence of place cells actually so of like using microelectrode recordings in epilepsy patients some studies found place cells other studies did not find place cells there are some empirical reasons why it's maybe unlikely to find anything like a place cell like representation in fMRI because adjacent place cells are do not show any topography so if you average across a larger voxel probably you cannot yeah. decode any any specific uh, locations Although some other studies suggest that actually it may be possible, so it's it's an ongoing discussion. But there is good evidence now from human single cell recordings that there's the so-called concept cells in the hippocampus, so which are like the the famous Jennifer Aniston cell or uh, Luke Skywalker cells or whatever, which code in a perceptually to to perceptually invariant concepts like like particular people. So then this suggests that uh, you have cells in the hippocampus which represent a point. In either a physical space or conceptual space, whereas uh, you have cells in the entorhinal cortex that provide a distance metric, so that code various different locations in physical space. So does this also occur in concepts uh, space? And this is, uh, I think, exactly what the Constantinescu paper suggests that actually uh, you have these two different types of uh, representations, either uh, like a metric uh, representation of distances of both physical distances or conceptual distances in the cortex, and a very specific um, representation of individual points in either conceptual space or physical space in the hippocampus. And this also fits the idea to like the, that the hippocampus provides a kind of an, of an index or pointer to representations in the neocortex, which can be very flexibly applied depending on task demands. So what drones often do in experiments is running around and also the real world. So um it's obvious or it's quite maybe no surprise that actually what you find in the hippocampus is representations of specific locations because they are running around. What humans often do is reasoning, making comparisons between concepts. So um it may be no no surprise that actually what you find is specific representations of individual concepts. So, if the epilepsy patients would run around all the time, and if you would would be able to record during this period, maybe it would be easier to to find also place cells. But the same cell in the hippocampus um, of an of an epilepsy patients, which represents a concept, may in other tasks, in other task situations, be used, be recruited, to serve as an index for specific locations.
0: I mean, is this then? An- I guess, is this uh, the secret work you're working on and can't really say too much about? Or is there something concrete planned with, yeah, something like this?
1: Yeah. I mean, this, this is very much ongoing, but, um, I mean, the, the, the main idea is to investigate this, uh, navigation in conceptual space. What we are trying is to go a little bit beyond the artificial birds from the Constantinescu study, which are, which are wonderful because, because they are so well controlled. But um on the other hand of course they are artificial. So Also um, it's
0: physical still. Right? It's still about length distances, which I find is in some sense it's not as abstract as as they say it is.
1: That's right, yeah. So so and, and, and I think that in any conceptual space where you need to make comparisons between pairs of objects I would expect to find, we haven't really shown that yet, and we don't have any even preliminary results supporting that, but I would expect and hypothesize to find similar representations of distances between, between objects, between faces, between whatever stimuli you can think of. And then, uh, like, one hypothesis uh, would be that um, actually path integration and navigation in this conceptual environment would correspond to, um, to comparisons. So, for example, when you see a person and a person's face and compare it, compare its similarity across the high dimensional face space, which consists of nose length, uh, whether someone has a beard and so on. Like, just think of all the features that make, make up faces. And you compare this, this person's face to another face. Or you compare two different objects. Or maybe you even compare, um, in social space, there's a number of papers about that now, like two people in terms of their approachability or or other other social dimensions. So whether you like them, whether you don't like them, and so on. So uh, so I guess this this navigation and the distance estimation in uh, in this conceptual space just just probably uh, it's my hypothesis would reflect similarity judgments in any space.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting i mean i'm particularly interested in this kind of social aspects because i do kind of social interactions and that kind of stuff not there's nothing like basically i have like one fmi study left in my phd and we're not sure whether we're going to do grid cells with that or not with the social stuff you should yeah that's a yeah, I mean, yeah the problem is kind of that for the stuff i have studied to make it like fit also into the stuff i've done before no one has done this with you know so it it would um the or rather kind of study one would be to establish whether this is a thing in this way I'm doing it at all and step 2 would be what I'm actually interested in doing but that's kind of what I will figure out figuring out the in the next few months um basically the the thing that I also discussed with Jakob was this question of how far can you translate the f- the physical findings into these abstract conceptual stuff or to what extent something is specific to space but uh, you'd you'd think that there is something like you know landmark based navigation in the sense of in this case as you mentioned comparing it to something you already know or
1: yeah, I mean, I agree. It's still, it's still a bit of an open question. What a landmark in conceptual space is, what boundaries in conceptual space are and so on. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess one possibility for a landmark would be, um, like something like a prototype, right? Like a prototypical representation of, let's say, a, a particular object, right? So when you, when you close your eyes and think of, a, uh, let's say, let's say a beer, it's getting late. And uh, then, then something something comes into your mind. So this is a prototype of a beer. And then, when you're comparing two other beers, you you may compare them with regard to your prototype, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, so when you see some bottle and are asked uh, to judge how how typical, for example, it is uh, of a beer bottle, then you compare it to your prototype of a beer. So this this may be something like a like a landmark based navigation. And boundaries, I guess, would would may reflect the boundaries of uh, like between concepts, which are maybe not also not not very easy to define. But there's there's probably some some boundaries where some some objects where you wonder whether this is a glass or a cup, for example, right? So um, <laughs> there's a prototypical glass, yeah. there's a prototypical cup, and there's like some things which are somewhere in between at the boundaries between them.
0: Like a cup made out of glass or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess we're not we're not gonna get a definitive answer today, but it's, no, it's something I find really interesting. Yeah. Um, but okay, I guess we've we've got maybe like ten minutes left. So shall we maybe move towards the kind of clinical applications? Um, whilst I was, or uh, well, at the same time that I was inviting you. Um, onto the podcast i was uh, by pure coincidence reading brave new world revisited by Aldous H- 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 Huxley, and there was a quote in there that happened to fit i think perfectly i guess i'll just read the quote the quote is pure science does not remain pure indefinitely sooner or later it is apt to turn into applied science and finally into technology and it seems to me i mean you know that's this is also kind of what i found so exciting about your paper that so we had the basic science with john O'Keefe just you know putting a more or less randomly an electrode into hippocampus and letting rats run around and then 40 years later we have the beginning of clinical applications right so i guess maybe as a very broad question so how far are we away from this being in any way clinically usable
1: so very good question of course so um predicting
0: the future is of course always easy yeah. <laughs>
1: So, um, so one caveat, of course, is that it's, I think, quite unlikely that you can, like, or what you cannot do is just take the the paradigm, the, the spatial navigation paradigm, also the Apple game, and test 60 or 70 years old in a scanner in order to see whether they have some alterations of their grid pattern. For practical reasons, this is not really feasible. And uh, what is still an open question is... Uh, I mean, what we've, what we've seen is that, that there are differences in grid cell-like representations and also navigational patterns and hippocampal activation between risk carriers, APOE risk carriers and non-risk carriers. But then on the other hand, like the, the easier, easier approach to find the difference between risk carriers and non-risk carriers is to genotype them and not, not do an fMRI study. So in other words, it's currently not clear to which degree these um, these findings of reduced grid-like representations or altered representational strategies provide any additional clinical, clinically useful information to uh, predict um, Alzheimer's development or Alzheimer's pathology in a in a um, in a given participant. So, what I could imagine, um what is what is much more feasible, of course, than an FMRI study in participants at risk for Alzheimer's disease or with like very early stages of Alzheimer's disease, is to, to do a, a cognitive paradigm. And um to try to develop um a cognitive paradigm, maybe something like the C hero quest, to find subtle alterations um in, in early disease stages. Then of course. Many validation steps are necessary. So one, of course, is a longitudinal study. So test whether in a 60 year old with subtle dysfunction or even only a change in navigational strategies in these paradigms, whether this participant is more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease um, than another person who doesn't show this, these deficits or these, these alterations in strategies and whether this, these early changes predict the development of Alzheimer's disease more than established clinical markers including ap 4 So this is just an empirical study, uh, an empirical question. Obviously longitudinal studies take a time and are like well, time consuming and, and expensive to conduct. I would love to do a similar study in the, in the future. I think it would be a necessary next step. I know that there's ongoing studies also with the C-Hero quest paradigm on, on this question. So it's, um, I think in the end, it's also an open question, which paradigm is best suited is most sensitive, most robust. But uh, I think there will be development on that. Another uh, question, of course, then is whether the changes in navigational strategy uh, are actually reflecting Alzheimer's pathology. In order to uh, to address that, one would need to uh, relate them to other biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. So CSF uh, would be one obvious uh, biomarker which you cannot really uh, obtain from healthy participants. Another one is blood markers of amyloid, uh, which are have been established very recently. And then, of course, what is very exciting is the new uh, possibility to do amyloid and tau PET imaging, right, where you do not okay. only um uh, measure the uh, overall amount of amyloid or, or tau in the brain, but even their regional distribution. So you can distinguish between, let's say, hippocampal or extrahippocampal, maybe even entorhinal tau uh, pathology. Of course, the, the spatial resolution of PET is somewhat limited, but um there's now the second generation of, of tau PET markers uh, out and, and there definitely will be further developments.
0: What I find really exciting about this is Kind of not the the pet-based uh, scanning or whatever because you know who has that scanners right that's very very few people can do that kind of scanning per year very few patients whereas what's much more exciting as you mentioned i mean for example the see hero quest is a game i mean for those who don't know it's like a smartphone based game you can just download it in the app store or whatever and I mean, as you, yeah, there's of course some like ethical problems with just anyone who's who uses boundaries a lot to just tell them, hey, you're using boundaries a lot. You might want to see a doctor. That's probably not how it's going to work. But I really like the idea of, yeah. I mean, you're at the doctors and they say, hey, you just play this smartphone game for like ten minutes while you're waiting, and then maybe that already tells you something, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think this this is a, a likely development. And uh, I mean, for me, what is so uh, fascinating about this. This research direction is that you can draw a line between on the one hand, very applicable methods like apps or behavioral paradigms on a laptop, even which are relatively easy to conduct in larger populations. So in the Apple game study, we had more than 300 participants who conducted the paradigm on the one hand and then the possibility to to do the same uh, experiment in the scanner and look at the bold responses. Then what we also did, what we didn't talk about, uh, is the same. Run the same paradigm in intracranial EEG in epilepsy patients, so that you could look at the electrophysiological pattern um, in in entorhinal cortex and, and hippocampus. um You could even look at the single cell pattern in in some epilepsy patients who have microwires implanted, and then you can see whether any changes in a in a given person are related to um, to tau pathology or, or amyloid pathology. So this this obviously will not be done in a single study. So you will not have like an epilepsy <laughs> patient who, uh, who okay, afterwards yeah. does a tau pit. But um, that's a
0: big study here. Yeah.
1: But 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 basically you can combine these different angles and these different pieces of evidence and then uh, try to develop paradigms that are very sensitive and very specific and easy to run which may allow you to increase the prediction, the predictability of Alzheimer's disease in a given person. And at the same time, you can validate the same paradigms by looking at grid cell-like representations in fMRI, single cell activity and intracranial EG oscillations in epilepsy patients and amyloid and tau and other biomarkers in uh, various individuals.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, final question uh so if I understand it correctly, you got a consolidated ground from the e l. c to work on this right on this kind of research area. Can you say kind of what's that was fairly recently right um so yeah kind of what's what's the plan there what yeah what's the rough direction you want to go down uh, with this research
1: yeah i mean uh, in in just one sense exactly what I just suggested <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> so uh like trying to understand how behavioral alterations are related across paradigms, how they relate to fMRI, grid cell-like representations, to electrophysiological signatures of grid cell-like representations and grid cells in in humans, and to Alzheimer's pathology.
0: And that's in physical space or also abstract cognitive space?
1: That's in in different spaces, including conceptual space.
0: Okay, cool. Um, So, I don't know whether there's anything else, any final words you want to say, otherwise I'll stop recording. I don't have like a formal ending. Um.
1: Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, a few years ago there was a, a so-called grid cell meeting in uh, London. Um, I'm not sure whether you participated in that as well, uh, where the, the different lines of direction of, of grid cell research came together. So, in addition to what we talked about, of course, all the, the uh, rodent uh, research, the really fascinating research in bats from Nachum Yulansky's lab, and also the modeling. And this was one of the most exciting meetings um, that year, and, and and for for multiple years, I think. So, what you could really see is that there's a, a very strongly divergent, but at the same time, very um, interdisciplinary and methodologically diverse field, um, which is progressing progressing very rapidly. And uh, I think it's a it's a very active and fascinating research direction. And uh, yeah, for anyone who, who isn't working on grid cell, grid cells yet or grid cell like representations, I just recommend uh, to go in that direction.
0: <laughs> okay, <cool. laughs>